Hello, everyone. Welcome to Equals. This is Nabil. Hi, guys. This is Nadia. And so we are here providing you with a special today. We finished season four, but we are back for a special episode because the IMF and the World Bank and the G20 finance ministers are all meeting this week. And you make the G20 and uh, spring meeting sound really interesting. So, so credit they are. <laughs> so look, this time of year, pre-pandemic each year, I'd be hopping on a plane, wouldn't I, to DC from Nairobi and obviously looking forward to hanging out with you, Nadia, but also preparing to lobby those financial leaders gathering in DC. But look, year three of the pandemic, and I just can't help sense, but you know, there's this huge mismatch, isn't there, between mm. the kind of action that we need by world leaders to respond to these crises and what they're actually promising to deliver. And this episode speaks to that. That's right. And Nabil, look, I'll be honest, right? We've been frustrated by the lack of ambition in previous, uh, you know, finance meetings, but the stakes just seem to be so much higher every single year. And we now have these huge converging crises, right? We have the pandemic, the Ukraine crisis, and its spillover effects, these soaring food and fuel prices. And this is a time we need serious multilateral action, financial action to support those lower income countries, right, who are who are facing these dire um, circumstances. But with these urgent needs, I have to be honest, what's scary is that it isn't even clear what can be achieved in the current political climate. Yeah, no, that's, that's a serious reality check. And look, we, we do face these converging crises, as you, as you say. Oxfam estimates that over a quarter of a billion more people could be pushed into extreme poverty this year. This is truly unprecedented. It would take us back decades in the fight against poverty. And what really brought it home to me here in Nairobi, speaking to a cab driver the other day, he said, everything is more expensive. Fuel, food, everything that I'm having to pay for. He said, we're returning to the days where only the rich ate chapatis because they could afford them. So, you know, we're at this moment, Nadia, where we should be talking about recovery, but actually we need to be talking about averting a catastrophe, an economic catastrophe. Yeah. And this episode really is one where we want to check in to see how do we want world leaders to step up in times of crisis, right? What is it that we would want from them and who better to be speaking with than a former world leader herself? So everyone, we are so thrilled to have with us today the Helen Clark. She was, of course, New Zealand's prime minister for several years. She went on to be the head of the United Nations Development Program, the UNDP. She even ran to be UN Secretary General a few years back. This is a remarkable woman. Helen, she, she truly is. And look, um, I remember when we started the People's Vaccine a couple of years ago, right at the inception of the campaign, we asked Helen for her support. And she was a first former world leader to come behind that campaign, but also to bring, you know, other world leaders from across the globe, an amazing campaign and advocate for social justice. Um, we're going to be speaking to Helen in her capacity as a member of Club de Madrid. Club de Madrid is an amazing organization that brings together democratically elected former world leaders, it includes Gordon Brown, who we also had on the podcast. Club de Madrid set up and have recently completed a commission that they set up, the Commission on Democracy and Emergencies. It's well worth a read. It really interrogates what governments should be doing to respond to this pandemic and also to prepare for future ones. Helen was also appointed by the World Health Organization to co-chair the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. Many of you will have seen the headlines around that, and that also advises governments what they need to be doing to prevent future pandemics. 
Well, she is a, an amazing woman and a busy one at that. So I am just so excited that she took the time to be with us. And I, I just can't wait to get to the interview. Let's get to it. Helen, it is such a, a wonderful honor to have you on our podcast today. It feels even odd calling you Helen to me. You are Prime Minister Helen Clark. I'm so honored and delighted that you're with us. Thank you. Thanks so much and great to do the podcast. Thanks so much, Helen. And let's get straight to it because you're a former world leader, but also one with a very active and present voice about current issues today. You're part of this amazing organization, Club de Madrid, which brings together former world leaders. Now, you've just finished this global commission on democracy and emergencies, and you've published this report, right, on what governments should be doing in response to this pandemic, but also to prepare for future ones. And you've been an active part of that. Let me go there. What are governments doing wrong and what are you saying world leaders need to be doing differently? So I think what uh, comes through the Club de Madrid uh, Global Commission report and the work of the independent uh, panel and various other independent efforts as well is that clearly the world wasn't prepared. And number one lesson out of all of this is for heaven's sake, get prepared. Review your experiences as a country from this pandemic and put in place now, if not yesterday, the measures that need to be in place to be prepared next time a threat like this emerges. Now, of course, easier said than done for many. And another seminal uh, recommendation from the independent panel was the need for global solidarity on not not just response when the worst happens, and, and that's been lagging as we know, but on preparedness, you need a financing mechanism that every year is going to be putting in the funding to support particularly low-income countries, least developed countries, to put the preparedness infrastructure into place. And on preparing for such crises, given how much inequality seems to define this crisis and others, I mean, we've even called it the inequality virus. What do these commissions say about addressing the unequal impacts of such crises? We need to look at the inequity within countries and between countries. You need equitable responses within countries which don't leave groups behind with income in the event that you decide to put in place lockdowns. In countries where people live a subsistence lifestyle, you know, money in, money out for the day to put the most basic food on the table, you tell people to lock down, well, what do they do? Does the family go without food? And when we live in a world where some 4 billion people have no access to the most basic social protection, that's a real choice. You starve or you go out. And then you may breach lockdowns, there may be penalties from that, you may get very sick and so on. So looking at the need for universal basic social protection as a core element of being prepared for all adverse events, pandemic and others, is so important. And it goes without saying that universal health coverage is is as well. Of course, it would also help if countries took seriously a public health emergency declaration of international concern from WHO. Too few countries took uh, much notice. So I think these are some of the key lessons. Just on public health there, Helen, you know, I think perhaps the biggest failure of the international response has been on vaccines. And it's just shown how stark these inequalities are between countries, hasn't it? On vaccination, 
Uh, I mean, I live in New Zealand, a, a developed country. Uh, everybody had free access to, to vaccines. Our population complains they came a little late, but but hey, you know, we, we are down to about 3.3% of the 12 plus age group in New Zealand, which hasn't had a single vaccine. It, it's, a, it's been a huge rollout and, and effort. But of course, uh, for many countries, uh, not least in Africa, it hasn't been possible to access the vaccines and get them out to people. And it's now thought that the World Health Organization target of 70% of uh, populations vaccinated, which should be happening by mid this year on their strategy, that won't happen for across Africa until sometime in 2024. So th this is really lamentable. And as a, a global society, we should have it on our conscience that we left a continent behind in many other countries too. I mean, what's the level of vaccination in Myanmar and Afghanistan and Yemen in any number of countries in profound conflict? You know, the pandemic will just be another burden on top of the incredible burdens people in those countries are carrying. That's really interesting to hear, Helen. And it all feels like a far cry from the policies that have dominated in recent years, but also in, in recent decades. And it seems like this Club de Madrid paper, as well as the Independent Pandemic Preparedness Response Panel, is saying something quite different to what world leaders have been up to. And that collection of policies, from universal public services to having a more assertive state, it seems like it sounds like you're saying, you know, let's move on from this neoliberal set of policies and we need a very different kind of economic model. Would you agree with that? Oh, I, I think we, we certainly need uh, fundamental changes in the economic model. The reality is that neoliberalism has served the interests of business and capital uh, very well. But I think there is a hunger globally for governments to do their job of ensuring universal health coverage, ensuring basic social protection, ensuring that the, the social wage is, is intact. In other words, policies that are much more equity focused and inclusive than we saw in the heyday of neoliberalism. You know, we would agree with you. We see this hunger. We see this demand for, for more equitable policies, more inclusive policies. But so often, from our perspective, we and, and a civil society writ large, maybe, you know, we, we see this as achieving these policies is a matter of political will. So I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, from your experience sitting behind the prime minister's desk, what are the practical obstacles that leaders like you faced in implementing these types of progressive and inclusive policies? I think on these basic socioeconomic issues, there's leaders like me and there's leaders not like me. There's leaders who simply don't believe in anything I've just said, who think it's every every dog for himself. You know, stand on your own feet. Uh, social security, in effect, becomes you know minimal charity. They don't see it as a as a right. So the only thing you can do with governments like that is try to change them. But for for governments. In a country like mine, there's definitely an appetite for the government to do something uh, about things and expectations from the public that the government will act. I think where it gets uh, trickier is in issues like climate action, where certainly in a country like mine, if you ask the broad question, should the government be doing something about climate change? 
most people say yes because they think the government should be doing something about everything mm. but when you ask the question well are you prepared to pay more for a liter of petrol oh no you know right. and and believe it or not in my last election campaign in 2008 the conservative opposition party which ended up defeating us at the election ran a campaign against us because we had the temerity to say that everyone would have to switch over to energy efficient light bulbs and we needed you know to be looking at ways of in, encouraging people not to use as much electricity in the home you know look at the temperature that water heaters are, are set at times of day for using washing machines and so on this all became a huge political issue about nanny state and the government telling you what to do so there was some cognitive dissonance between people saying yes yes it, it probably is a problem the government should do something but i shouldn't have to do anything now i do think in the last um what decade and a half almost since i've been a, a, a prime minister things have changed a lot in many developed countries, there's much more awareness, actually, that individuals do have to do things as well as governments doing things and business doing things. But even so, what, what I would say to civil society is if you're a leader and trying to lead on these kinds of issues, you need support. Look, you know, I understand the NGO world. I understand government incredibly well. I understand that, you know, NGOs will advocate but when you advocate, also give a bit of credit because it's it's often as if a government will make an announcement and then there'll be a sort of chorus that says, not enough, not fast enough. So what I would say is give credit for moves in the right direction while urging uh, further and faster because unless governments have a chorus of support for the direction that's right and progressive, it's very hard to move forward and you become very vulnerable to opposition attacks. The challenge is, I think, to have so much support for moving in a progressive direction, whether it's on equity or, or climate or, or whatever it is, that oppositions feel they have to play catch up and somehow come on board. And in a way, if we look at, at Western Europe, to quite a large extent, most conservative parties have come along on issues like, like climate change. They know something has to be done, whether they'll, they'll do very much is another thing. But it, it is no longer politically correct to, you know, to deny it in, in most in most countries. So that's been my experience. I have taken on you know, very controversial issues in my time as a prime minister. Yeah. And what enabled you to carry through was having strong voices coming from academia, the professions, civil society saying this is the direction we have to go. And, Otherwise, it's very lonely trying to push policies that no, can, no one can be bothered speaking up for. Well, that's, that's great advice um, coming from you. And, and we'll certainly do what we can to play our part to, to provide that you know, external political backing. And it's good to know that those voices are, are heard and are important. They certainly are heard and they are extremely important. And Helen, that's really interesting for me to get that advice, but also to understand how you framed it there at the start in terms of you've got you'll have leaders who will be very hard to push to do the right thing. And then you've got leaders who are in the right place. And in many ways, I think, you know, you were quite unique in your era in, in trying to push progressive policies. But at the same time, the reality is, um, dare I say, Helen, that, you know, in the, in the past decades, we have seen leaders taking more of a, of a center ground, taking less of progressive positions, 
that you did. And that policy mix as part of that era has contributed to the inequalities that we see today. And that's been supercharged during the pandemic. Being a former world leader and you know, speaking with former world leaders. I don't know if you're in a WhatsApp group and how you meet and, and so on, but that's that's a separate point. But, you know, is there a sense among that community, Helen, that, you know, or a reflection even that not enough was done to tackle these inequalities that grew in such a grotesque way in recent decades? Well, probably not enough reflection on that. I mean, I regard myself as as very fortunate as Prime Minister that I had a a strong bench of senior ministers. That led to some very important policies, specifically aimed at lifting incomes of lower and low middle income households and, and, you know, starting to reduce the, uh, the inequalities. If I think across the the range of former leaders that that I know. Some came to power in in transition Europe, where there was a pretty rough Chicago school introduction to (laughs) democratic politics and and, uh, economic systems. Very, very tough. But in New Zealand, we always look to the Netherlands, Germany, Scandinavia, to, to look at the trends, and not everything's perfect there by any means, but they have been societies which have been prepared to tax and invest in social protection, education, uh, healthcare, and so on. So, you know, th- there are some good role models, but others have been you know, caught in much more vulnerable positions, I think, particularly in that transition out of the, the, the Soviet states and, and East European and, and Balkan states in, in general and into a, a different kind of world. Yeah, I, wonder, I just wonder, Helen, if, if, if some former world leaders are thinking, perhaps, you know, we shouldn't have let the Chicago boys through the door. But, you know, at the same time, part of me wonders as well that that kind of economic thinking also just became so dominant right? That it just became the norm that then it just limited the policy mix of that time. What do you think? Well, I I think it shifted the whole pendulum to the right. But in a sense, it's dramatic events like those we've seen. And and I'll go back to the global financial crisis, which have got debate going again about the need for a smarter state that invests in its people and underwrites living standards. I think the pandemic has produced even more of a response uh, than the global financial crisis in that respect. I recall the global financial crisis when Gordon Brown rallied the troops with those first G20 uh, leaders meetings for the trillion dollar package and bailout from the IMF. There was a Keynesian response, but it quite quickly, as governments changed, Gordon's government obviously changed, went to a much more cost-cutting, budget-cutting approach. But I think the pandemic has been of another order again, where the reality is that you had to spend to get through this. And who would have thought that we would have heard an executive, managing director of the IMF say, as Kristalina Georgieva did in the early months of the pandemic, spend what you can but keep the receipts. <laughs> Keeping the receipts was very important for you know, tracking the money and ensuring it went for the purposes it should have and not into back pockets. But spend what you can. Use the fiscal space you can to come through this because if you try and deal 
with a pandemic through austerity, you're just going to worsen much more the social and economic effects. So I think the pandemic has been a, a catalytic event in revisiting those neoliberal uh, models. Helen, I, I want to go back to something you said. You said um, Kristalina Georgieva has, you know, been saying spend, spend, but keep the receipts. And, and indeed, we did see that at the beginning of the pandemic. Now we actually are seeing, you know, more of a trend towards austerity again, you know, now that governments are uh, put in, in a corner, really, when it comes to their budgets. And uh, it appears from their perspective that there is very little... Uh, alternative, the IMF is now saying to them, you do need to go down a more austere path and be cautious. And part of it, I, I have to wonder, is that politics and economic policymaking is still captured in some way by the elite. And in that regard, I've also seen politics being captured and economic decision making by men. And I actually want to turn to, to a question on the fact that you, you've broken barriers throughout your career for women, not just in your, uh, your time as prime minister, but also, you know, in a major way at the United Nations. You, you even ran to be the first woman secretary general of the United Nations, which was huge. But it, it still stings that leadership feels like a man's world. Why do you think that is? Let me answer in two parts. Because the point you're making about getting budgets back into balance and austerity again would be consistent with the pattern of post the global financial crisis. Once the height of it had got, the spending stopped. However, <laughs> there's a new factor now since February the 24th, and that's the war in Ukraine, which has sent energy prices soaring and food prices soaring. It has profound global impacts. And this in my humble opinion, will need a concerted approach to increase fiscal space again for many, many countries. This is not the time to be ramping up austerity and balancing budgets. It, the world is too fragile. The world economy is too fragile for that right now, in my opinion. Um, I, I couldn't so, agree more. Yeah, let's see how that plays out. But austerity right now would be a disaster. But coming back to the issue of, of women's leadership. Look, so few countries have had women leaders and have them currently. When I, when I was first a prime minister, I went to the Millennium Summit and Mary Robinson, a former president of Ireland who was the UN Human Rights Commissioner, convened a meeting of women heads of UN agencies and major departments and heads of state and government. And I say, well, we wouldn't have fitted in one telephone box, if anyone can remember a telephone box, but we might have fitted in two. There were so few of us. And I still remember the Prime Minister of Dominica, the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, the President of Latvia, and me. You know, that, that, that was it. And then there was Grohal and wow. Brooklyn from the WHO and Mary and someone who was an Undersecretary General in Management or whatever in the, in the UN Secretariat. I mean, it was pathetic. But it's not yeah. much better now. So, so why is this? Uh, the reality is there is still significant gender discrimination uh, across societies. It leads to not enough people in not enough countries uh, seeing uh, women as uh, worthy of holding top office. Uh, one organisation I'm involved with, Women Political Leaders, commissions a survey from Kantar, the research firm, every year on perceptions of women's leadership in different sectors, both public and, and private sectors, 
in, in G20 countries. And it's absolutely woeful. Even in Germany, which has had one of the world's most powerful, long-serving women leaders, attitudes are not very progressive towards women's leadership in politics. So there's underlying issues of bias and discrimination here. And I should say that even in New Zealand, where for all but uh, nine of the years since 1997, there have been women leaders, so that's you know clearly most of the time, uh, there's still a lot of gender-based attacks on women leaders mm-hmm. like Jacinda Ardern, as, as there were in my time and the time of the uh, woman prime minister who served for two years before I did. So even though women get to the top in New Zealand, and they've been the top of everything except the police and the military, there's still attitudes that I think have found expression in the anonymity of social media, the viciousness of the trolls, the attacks, the fake news. It's stepped up to a whole new level of bile against women who are high profile. And and that's quite, quite disturbing. And Helen, that's interesting to hear that, especially coming from the country, New Zealand, that was the first nation to grant women the vote, right? Correct. 1893. There we are. There we are. But Helen, let me just dig deeper there into this question, because it is such an important question. And I can't help but think, you know, two years into this pandemic, an estimated 20 million deaths, which is what The Economist counts as as its true death toll, an abysmal response by many countries, you know, still no people's vaccine. You know, do you think the world would have fared better with more women leaders in charge at this time? Unquestionably, because when you look at how the countries led by women did, generally the women leaders did pretty well. I mean, these women were stars in in the way they put health first, Mm. people's health and well-being first. And funnily enough, doing that actually worked out to be a pretty good economic response. New Zealand has had far and away, by a country mile, the lowest death rate from COVID in the OECD. But it's also come in at round about fifth in GDP growth rate for what that's worth. So having a very, very strong public health response also turned out to be a very good economic response. So in a way, should we be surprised? You know, if your people are able to be protected and have more confidence, then, you know, the economy is going to zing along a little better as, as well. We also saw the women leaders very likely to make judgments and take decisions on the basis of evidence and science and not to distrust and debunk it and and so on. And we saw very effective women communicators. Now, this is not to say that all men did badly. By no means. There were men who did very well. And I I think, for example, the president of the Republic of Korea, who I thought did an excellent job, and there's others too. Hmm. But the women consistently performed above average on the pandemic. And I think it's because it was you know, a people-centered approach that they took and one that took the, their publics with them on a journey and was, was more open and communicated well and was seen to rely on, you know, on science and public health advice. So the women, uh, the world needs more women leaders is, a, is one of the key messages then. Um, Helen, though I hate to say it, we're coming to the end of the interview, but we always try to end somewhere hopeful. So I, I must ask you, you know, wherever we look, it feels bleak. 
be it the COVID-19 crisis, the, the climate crisis, the hunger crisis in East Africa. We're still deeply worried about the situation in Yemen. And we're all, of course, witnessing this conflict in Ukraine and, and the rising food and fuel prices, um, which you referenced earlier and, and which you know we see are going to create more hunger, more poverty. It's so bleak. And all of these bear huge consequences for, for more inequality and suffering. So my question for you is, how do you find hope for change in such a bleak time? You're right. I mean, times are bleak. They're very grim, actually. But there's an old saying, you know, without hope, the people perish. So we have to have hope that if we all do the things that are within our power to do, and in my case, it maybe my voice, maybe the roles that I play in different organizations, um, we, we can make a difference. We can nudge things along. I put you know, a tremendous amount of time and effort into the independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response. You know, one wouldn't expect that everything you recommended would get picked up and done, but you know, quite a lot will be. So I feel you, know, you can make a difference. I think every citizen, their voice makes a difference. It counts. Advocating with your decision makers at whatever level, taking action yourself for a difference, whether it's on climate or, you know, in, in inclusiveness at, at, at your local society level. We just have to keep on because if people of goodwill are so depressed by this that they think there's nothing they can do, well, we're all doomed. We have to keep working for something better than this you know, shocking period that we, we are living through and, and support those who are in a position to make changes. Thank you so much, Helen, and what an amazing interview and, 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 and you've shared with us so much and also shared with us some amazing insights and also amazing advice. But let me also say thank you for, for all you're doing as a world leader. I've particularly been so appreciative of, of your work on the people's vaccine that we've worked on here at Oxfam. So I'll stick that on my wall. Without hope, people perish. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Wow, that was a rich conversation. Nabil, what did you think? Well, I think we should clearly be interviewing more former world leaders on equals, right? <laughs> One thing I appreciated, Nadia, um, speaking to Helen was what she said about women leaders of today. And, you know, part of me just can't help juxtapose the likes of Jacinda Ardern and the way that she's handled the pandemic in New Zealand to some other world leaders, to the likes of former President Trump. And also, you know, on, on, in a very real way, the idea that we could have ended the pandemic by now with more women world leaders, that does hit home. It does, it does. And, and, and just thinking about other things that she said that really did hit home for me. One was when she said, you know, this is just not the time for austerity and that that would mm. be devastating in today's climate. And, and, you know, that's something that we've been tracking really closely. And our latest research shows now that the IMF is requiring 87 percent of the lower income countries it's lending to to undergo austerity. And that's as a condition of financing. So, wow. I mean, really glad that she said that. I really hope the IMF can put the brakes on this and that governments can take a different path because it would just be so devastating for the world's, you know, most vulnerable populations in particular. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It would be a, a terrifying course of action. And look, mm. it also reminds us, Nadia, that, you know, for all the talk, for all the hype, for all the rhetoric, neoliberalism is far from over. It's very alive. It's very well. And I think Helen was very eloquent there about how those economic policies shifted the pendulum to the right and something that she yeah. had to contend with. 
And it's also just clear how we're still suffering because of it. I feel we do need more former world leaders like Helen to be maybe more outspoken with this current generation to say we need a different kind of economic model for our time. That would be great. And we have this podcast as a platform to welcome any former world leaders that want to do that. Creating a new economic model, one equals episode at a time, right? There you go. There you go. So everyone, (laughs) if you like what you hear, and we have so many amazing episodes, we have four seasons worth. A particular one that stood out for me recently was our, our one on Chile, if you need some uplifting. So please do check these out. Absolutely. We also have an uplifting blog, equalshope.org. Um, we have blogs posted on there. We also have transcripts of the podcast episode. So do check that out, equalshope.org. Do leave us a review. Please do share the podcast with your friends. And otherwise, I will catch you in a few weeks time for season five of Equals. Bye, everyone. Bye.